I don't know how many of you were given Bible study notes to read when you were little. Any? Little bread of a lot, you know, daily bread, things like that. I, I was given them at the age of five, I think, I had these little Bible study notes. And um, I guess it's very easy to read the Bible in little chunks, isn't it? And sometimes we, we can spend a lot of time over just a few verses, and that's great. But it can sometimes mean that we, we, we miss the big themes of the Bible, the big themes of Scripture. And over this month of July, we're taking five Sundays where we're going to actually go. We're going to go on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. We're trying to look at some of the big picture themes, the meta-narratives of the Bible, and see how the Bible in an amazing way holds together. Because the Bible's an amazing book. I've got one here. I hope that you bring your Bible or you've got it on your phone or you read it. But it's an extraordinary book, isn't it? Because it's a book where the human agency is very real. You know, we're aware that this is a, a collection of writings and books and manuscripts over hundreds of years that have been kind of brought together. And um, it's a very human document. And yet we also see the agency of the Holy Spirit in it. And it's also a very spiritual document. And in, in many ways, for, for us, as we read the Bible seriously and with faith, we think, God, in some extraordinary providential way, you've taken the agency of human beings, and you've breathed on it and made it something which in itself holds together in a remarkable way to reveal truth about you and truth about us and truth about creation in, in, in a way that could be really life-giving to us. And so we're going to begin today with looking at origins, and we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis. And um, Roger Forster, who is 90, and um, led the Ichthus Fellowship, probably until he was 89, I don't know, for a long time anyway, in London. He, he, he used to talk about um, Genesis as the seed plot of the Bible. And I'm going to take, if you like, today some seeds, some seed thoughts, and I'm going to sprinkle them over you. And it may be that as I sprinkle some seeds from the book of Genesis over you, you'll get um, some things that you'll... Um, resonate with or that you'll want to explore or that will kind of take root in you and think, oh, I need to really get my head around that. And um, I'll try and extract my glasses from my pocket, which is proving quite hard. <laughs> there they are. So um, you probably know the Bible off by heart like me, but I'll just, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was about form and void and darkness was over the face of the, spirit, of the deep. And the spirit of God was brooding over the waters. And then God said, let there be light. Did you know it like that, off by heart? Well, I don't either, really. I, just don't, I know, know little bits of it. But that is actually how the Bible begins. It's Genesis, the beginnings, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And um, you're not meant to read the book of Genesis like a scientific textbook. In, I mean, scholars will tell you that there are several tr kind of creation traditions that have been brought together um, in, in the in the in the manuscript of, of Genesis itself. And, but yet, in an extraordinary way, in that God-breathed way, there's something which speaks profound truth to us about God's creation. And this is what Christians really need to believe about creation. You don't need to believe it was made in seven literal days, so you can if you want to. You, you, know, you don't need to believe even in the kind of orders. Uh, that, but you, what, this is what you absolutely definitely need to believe, and it's in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for, an assurance about we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So what is seen was not made out of what was visible. See, it's a faith book. It's not a scientific textbook. It's a faith story that we're in. 
And by faith, we believe truly that our God is the creator God and that everything that is came from him. Gerald Coates, who was one of the early kind of house church pioneers of um, recent years, died last year, actually. But um, he was interviewed on Radio 4 once in a little panel debate. And they said, surely, Mr. Coates, you don't believe that God created the universe out of nothing. And they said, what's well, far more believable than that nothing created the universe out of nothing. And I agree with Gerald. It's, it's, it's the point to him. God is our creator God. And so when we look at creation, it's not surprising that for many of us, it evokes worship in us because we believe that heavens and the earth reveal the glory of the one who made them. And what the, what the book of Genesis does is it tells us how God is creative, how he's always creating. And so there are a number of things to take note of right at the very beginning. First of all, that the Spirit of God is there. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And I want to give a shout out that the primacy of the work of the Spirit, as the, the, the person of the Godhead that gets God's will done, begins in Genesis and is there throughout the Bible. Wherever God's will is being done, the Spirit of God is there, whether it's in creation itself or whether it's anointing prophets and kings in the Old Testament or whether it's resting on Jesus or on the, the apostles of the New Testament, the Spirit of God is getting the will of God done. So Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Why? Because he sees the Spirit of God at work in creation, getting God's will done. So the Holy Spirit's there. Then the second thing about this is that God takes chaos and brings form out of that chaos and breathes fullness into it. And that's how God's creative work is always done. He takes chaos, he puts form, and then there comes fullness. And we can see this again as a, as a picture of how, this is how the creator God from the book of Genesis is working throughout scripture. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 39, the valley of the dry bones. Chaos, bones everywhere. And God brings them together, so there's form. And then he says to the prophet, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, well, God, you know. And he, as the prophet prophesies, breath comes into the bones and what is formed becomes full of life. And it's a picture of the way that God's creative power takes chaos, brings form and renews. And so the temple itself is something that is created out of chaos, out of stuff, and is formed into something beautiful, and then is full of the presence of God. And so the tabernacle, the stories of how the tabernacle is described in um, Leviticus and Exodus, and, and, and in, um, in, in the, the building of the temple by Solomon in, in Kings, they, they speak to us about how God created in the first place. And, and actually, there's real resonance there, because in many ways, creation itself is a temple that the Genesis story is about God creating a place where God and man can have fellowship and where God can be adored. And so it's not surprising that the, the temple and the, the tabernacle are resonant with creation imagery. Chaos becomes form and form is filled. And so when Solomon's temple is dedicated in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, it says the presence of God was so thick there, God so filled that place that the priests themselves could not enter in because God's presence was there in what he had inspired in creation. So, chaos to form to fullness and God the creator God. And so, what does it mean then for 
us to understand our, our relationship with the creation if God made it as a temple that we might know him. Well, first of all, for sure, we are going to encounter God in the universe. We're going to encounter God as we look at a starry night. We're going to encounter God as we walk by the ocean or as we climb a mountain or as we're just in the pastoral landscape. And we'll say, God, you made beauty. I find that I go for a walk and I see God's hand everywhere. And it makes me want to praise and thank him. And it's right and proper. That's the right response of human beings to creation, to thank God. But it also means we're called to steward it, not to abuse it. Because it's a temple. It belongs to him. And you wouldn't hopefully come into this place of worship and think, oh, hello, I could do with a microphone back home. I'll take that home with me, because that would be exploiting the temple. When, when um, you know, you wouldn't go into the Solomon's temple and say, oh, it's a, here's a golden pomegranate. I think I'll take that back to brighten up my tent. No, because it's a place of worship. And we don't take creation and try and exploit it for our use. Rather, we want to steward it to make it even more fruitful. And so it's really important that Christians are involved in creation care and stewardship of planet Earth and seeing an increase of beauty and fertility rather than a ransacking and dealing with it selfishly for our, our own selfish benefit. That wasn't how it's ever meant to be. Human beings were given creation to steward but not to exploit. The second thing that we, we can um, pick up from, or maybe might be the third thing, I'm not sure, I lost count, from um, um, Genesis is God's creation of human beings. And it says this in verse 26 of chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all he'd made. It was very good. It was the evening. It was the morning of the sixth day. So a whole bunch of stuff there, really. God's creation of humanity tells us about God as well as about humanity. Because if God is creating humanity in his image and chooses to make them male and female, what does that tell us about God? Well, one thing that we believe about God is that God is love. In John's letter, he describes God and says God is love. And we, that, that's axiomatic for who God is. And, and what, to understand God being love from eternity implies God being in relationship from eternity because how can you love unless there's someone to love? And, and for us, the idea that God is three in one, that God is not less personal than we are but more personal, and that his personality is actually three persons in one, God Father, God Son, and God Holy Spirit, and that's been so from the very beginning, it implies to us that God's love has been real within the Godhead from eternity. God is a, um, a plurality of personality living in this extraordinary way in community, in the Godhead. And therefore, when God makes in his image, he makes diversity within unity. He makes male and female in his image because that's what it's like. So men and women, humanity is also meant to be, from the very beginning, in love. And m mankind is, is, is not best expressed in one single kind of human being, but in male and female carrying together 
within the diversity of, of, of what it means to be at the, the continuums of masculinity and femininity, a whole range of humanity type and personality type that can faithfully express the diversity of God himself is infinitely creative. And um, I think it's really interesting as well as we think about God creating in his image, creating male and female, the very first words that God says to human beings. It's a, it's a point of um, exegesis, I think, that the first things God says to people or about people are worth noting in the Old Testament. And the first things that God says to the human beings are, be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, fill the earth and subdue it. And um, be fruitful and multiply, that makes me think about sex. It says that actually for human beings to be sexual, uh, to be creative, to have a, a life instinct is very fundamental to human beings. Genesis predates Freud by some millennia. You know, um, you know, Freud talked about the internal drives of human beings, of eros and thanatos, the, the drive for, for the life force and the drive for the power of destruction. And, and actually, the Bible speaks about these things too and talks about those from the very beginning. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And um, when we think about what that means, it means also that what God creates good and wholesome, beautiful, social, relational, life-giving relationships between man and woman and um, foundational shaping and stewarding instincts about the creation. In a fallen world where human beings collude with malignant powers, it's not surprising that it's around sex and power that there is distortion and perversion of what it means to be humans. And things that God created good are being distorted to no longer help and bless, but to hurt and harm. And we can see some of that collusion here in the book of Genesis 2, but more of that anon. I think that um, that principle for us of fill the earth and subdue it, though, it doesn't stop in the book of Genesis, or it doesn't stop in the first chapter. You know that um, God's heart is that the very heavens and the earth should be full of his reality and his glory, and that his image bearers, men and women, should be taking that. That was his plan in the very beginning. And what goes wrong in Genesis chapter 3, there's a fresh start with Noah, and Noah is given the same commission, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. But do you know that same commission is given to us, the church? When Jesus commissions his disciples at the end of the Gospels, go into all the nations and make disciples of all nations. Go into all the earth, make disciples of all nations. He's actually saying, fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. That's what he's saying. That, that, that mandate, take the glory of God, not by having literal physical children, though that might be part of it, but it's about making spiritual children for God. It's creating sons and daughters of God, going into all the nations. And we, we celebrated this morning a couple who are here who are in an unreached nation in Southeast Asia. And what they are doing is they've taken, they've gone from Bristol and spent their lives there, is they're obeying that mandate to be fruitful and multiply to go and make disciples of all nations. It's because the heart of God hasn't changed from the very beginning, and it seeds itself throughout creation. So at the end of the book, we'll see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the book of Revelation. That's where it's going to end. So much of what we see in the beginning in Genesis is going to find its fulfillment in the end of the book of Revelation. So, um, you know, the garden, we find the garden 
in the city at the end. We find the river of life is there. We find the tree of life is there. And it's got expanded. It's not just one tree. It's the, the leaves of the trees that grow along the river for the healing of the nations. And, and every tribe and tongue is there. And this creation that was meant to be a temple for God. Now in the book of Revelation, at the end of it all, the new heavens and the new earth, we don't need a temple, the writer says, because God himself is there. And the fellowship of God is with man. We don't need sun or moon because God's light gives light to it all. And we find that the Lamb of God is there, the one who leads us to the springs of living water where God wipes every tear from our eye. And what begins as a seed in Genesis finds its fruitfulness in the book of Revelation. And that's where we're going, actually. We're going to just pick up some of these themes and take them all the way through the, the that's Bible overview. Here's another little thing to pick up from. It's very relevant for you because you're here on Sunday. You've come to church on Sunday, haven't you? Why have you done that? Because one day in seven, we have a holy day. And actually, there's a principle of Sabbath which takes a really important place in, um, in, 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 in the story of Genesis. On the sixth day, it says, God finished his work, and on the seventh day, he rested. By the seventh day... God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Now this is again good news for human beings, because God is a God who wants to give us rest. When the Jewish um, people formed their identity. Sabbath was right at the heart of it. The identity was based on a day of rest. And in fact, as you probably know, the Jewish week starts with a day of rest, not a day of work. It's the, the Jewish Sabbath, in fact, starts in the evening, not the morning. It starts with a meal and with sleep. It begins in rest because for us as human beings, we don't need to work to earn God's favor. We've already got God's favor and we work out of rest. That's the principle. That's how Jesus lived, wasn't it? Jesus, when he was baptized, hadn't done his work. And his baptism itself is very resonant of many things in the book of Genesis, actually. The Spirit of God is brooding over him and rests on him as he comes through the waters like Noah's flood and, and is the branch and all that kind of stuff. But there he is. On that day, God says, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. And Jesus is good before he's worked and humans were made good before the word. And God's pleasure in us is not because we've worked to earn God's favor, because not, that's not how the relationship with God is. We work out of the rest and out of the, the, the privilege of being stewards of God's creation. That's how it's meant to be. And a place of rest is not just a place of uh, a selfish rest. It's a place of rest for our souls because we are with our creator. And, and a, a day of rest is also meant to be a holy day because we share it with, with God. So I'm a great believer in coming to God to worship. Uh, it's not particularly a day of rest for me, um, Sunday, uh, four services in, you know. But I, I do um, try and take a day of rest, which I've been very bad at doing recently. And what I've discovered is that, for me, not taking a day of rest, which I've not been doing very well over the last month or so, is I, I'm not as fruitful and flourishing as I would be if I had done. And there's something about fruitfulness and flourishing which depends on obeying that command to rest, which is there in the Ten Commandments. Which of the Ten Commandments do we ignore? Sabbath-keeping tends to be the one that ignored more than most of the others, you know? 
So let's take that seriously, what it means to find a place of rest for our souls and our bodies uh, so that we can be fruitful, so we can go back out from a place of rest and well-being and renewal in order to enjoy what it means to be creative partners with God in seeing his, his um, good and perfect plan being worked out. Just a couple of other things to say, as little seeds to throw in. God's affected by the pain of his creation. Genesis 6, verse 6 says, God saw that the, evil, the, the inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time, and it grieved him to his heart. It pained him that he'd made creation. There's something about the heart of God that actually is in pain over our evil. And the book of Genesis speaks about a world gone wrong, a world where a broken relationship with God leads to a broken relationship between human beings. And that broken relationship between human beings leads to an escalation of violence and disorder and disunity. And the early chapters of Genesis are a picture that starts with a breaking of the fundamental relationship between God and humanity. When Eve... um, colludes with or listens to the voice of the serpent and and is God really for you? Did God really say? And and takes a step of of of, of independence, of breaking of, of contract and covenant with God and eats an apple or a fruit. And then that brings a disorder between her and Adam. And you see that in the the kind of the curse that follows. You know, the, the, the you know the, instead of love and cherish it's desire and dominate. And then you see Cain and Abel and actually fratricide and murder between brothers. And then you see the kind of the, the, the nations and, 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 the, and the kind of the Tower of Babel and division and strife and Lamech, you know, who says, you know, I've, I've wounded someone for, for insulting me and I'll, I'll take revenge 70 times. It's an escalation. It's a Pandora's box. That's what happens. It's a law of cause and effect. You open the doorway to evil and pain and violence and it escalates. We see that all the time. We see that when a country goes to war. You look at Ukraine, what starts with a, a kind of limited area of conflict and the, 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 the bitterness and the chaos that flows from it. And what God does when he sees the pain and the brokenness of creation, he doesn't withdraw from it, though his heart is full of pain. He enters into it. And Genesis 3 shows us God entering into the pain of a broken world. It's not that God withdraws from humanity. It's that humanity withdraws from God, that man and woman hide. And God comes looking for them. Adam, where are you? And when he encounters them, he mitigates the effects of their brokenness and clothes them in their nakedness. And he begins a story of redemption that is going to take us all the way through the Bible, right through to the book of Revelation, to that lamb looking as though it had been slain. And it begins in Genesis 3, where he says to the where God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And prophetically, right there in Genesis 3, we see Jesus. We see the one who is the seed of woman, the son of Mary, Jesus, who comes to crush the serpent's head. And that's where that's going to happen at the cross. And his heel is going to be bruised in the process. Jesus, the lamb of God, who looks as though he's slain. He's going to suffer. The lamb who was slain from the beginning of time. The lamb who is God's heart for a broken world. And God himself will draw near in incarnation and share his life with us. 
but it puts into motion the whole creative plan. It begins in, in Genesis, it's prophesied, and, and as Abraham, the friend of God, starts to live out covenantal relationship with God, and that his people might be for the blessing of the world. I've chosen you not to be blessed for your sake as a nation, but that you might be a light to the world. And out of the seed of Abraham ultimately comes the seed who will crush the serpent's head. That's Jesus, the new creation, the second Adam. It begins here and it takes us all the way through. So there's so much more we could say about um, the book of Genesis, but I've scattered some seeds, haven't I? But what we're going to do is we're going to take communion because this is right at the heart of it all. You know, it's a God who mitigates by sacrifice and ultimately by sacrificing himself. And the story of... um, Abraham and Isaac and all of that and that call to offer your son isn't for Abraham to do, but it's for God to do. Your son, your only son who you love. It's not that Abraham would be required, but Abraham would be allowed to see something of the heart of God. That's why Jesus can say, Abraham saw my day. Because he could see the the father's heart, the father being so willing to save the world that he wouldn't hold anything back from us. And today, in your chaos... God wants to produce form and fullness. He wants to fill you with his spirit. In your um, commission, he wants to send you out into the world to be fruitful. In your breaking of covenant, God wants to restore you and put you right with him. And this is what the Bible calls the new covenant that we're taking today. It's the bread which speaks of the body of Christ, the blood which uh, is symbolized in in the wine, the grape juice. And what we're going to do, we're going to take communion. We've got several stations. We've got the front here and at the sides. And as you come to the tables to have, I think, gluten-free bread and, and non-alcoholic grape juice, uh, you'll be invited to um, just maybe take and eat. And we'll perhaps hold this out before you. I like to hold it up and say, come, the body of Christ, you the blood of Jesus. Here at the front, there'll be a team. They'd love to pray for you. If you need a creative miracle in your life, God's a creator. He's still working today. If you need God's hand on your life, his blessing, he's here for you today. We'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, go to one of the other stations. You'll just take the bread and the cup in the regular way. But I'm going to lead us in a prayer of commitment, of, of a prayer that talks about restoration. Father God, thank you so much that you're the God who restores a broken world and a broken person like me. And that you offer mercy instead of judgment. And you do that through giving yourself, through Jesus Christ, into our lives. And so, Jesus, will you forgive us in your name for the things we've done that hurt you, hurt others, hurt ourselves? Will you fill us again with your spirit that we might bear your image into the world as we go out into all the world? Amen. And on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Jesus, the Lamb of God who was whole, was broken so that broken people like us could be made whole. And after supper, Jesus took a cup and said, this is a new covenant, my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And we do remember that Jesus died and we celebrate he's risen. And by his spirit, he's with us. So let's say the acclamation. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And will you come in your own time to one of the tables and share with us in this sacrament? And we'd love to... Do that in the context of worship, so the worship team are going to lead us.